Hey everyone, welcome to the ESF podcast for this fortnight. I hope everyone's coping well with um, all the changes that are happening at the moment, um, especially with e-scripts and um, all the PBS changes. But um, hopefully I can give you guys some um, some clinical updates that, that will help out at the moment. First one this week is um, a Scandinavian cohort study looking at the use of sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors and the risk of serious renal events associated with that. So... As we know, type 2 diabetes is a leading cause of kidney failure, and although treatment with um, ACE inhibitors and ARBs uh, reduce the risk of adverse renal outcomes in patients with diabetes, the risk remains high, and a large need exists for new treatments that lower the risk of kidney failure. Sodium glucose co-transporter 2 or SGLT2 inhibitors are a class of glucose-lowering drugs that also reduce blood pressure, body weight, and albuminuria. Um, large clinical trials have been shown that these drugs have beneficial effects on renal outcomes. And the Credence trial, patients with type 2 diabetes and albuminuric chronic kidney disease who received canagliflozin experienced lower rates of the composite renal outcome versus placebo, including end-stage kidney disease, a doubling of serum creatinine concentration, and death from renal causes. Similarly, rates of composite renal outcomes were reduced among patients with type 2 diabetes with high cardiovascular risk receiving canagliflozin in the CANVAS program, empagliflozin in the Emparig outcome trial, and dapagliflozin in the DECLARE TIMI58 trial. The data from the clinical trials um, provide evidence for the renoprotective effects of SGLT2 inhibitors, but uncertainty remains about the effect of these drugs on renal outcomes in routine clinical practice. Now, the four large clinical trials assessing renal outcomes with SGLT2 inhibitors have included only patients at high cardiovascular risk or with established nephropathy. Patients receiving SGLT2 inhibitors in clinical practice tend to be more heterogeneous, and whether the findings of the clinical trials are generalizable to broad, unselected groups of patients is unknown. So the study in Scandinavia wanted to assess the association between the use of sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors and risk of serious renal events in data from routine clinical practice. Now, the use of SGLT2 inhibitors was associated with a 58% lower risk of a composite outcome of serious renal events, including renal replacement therapy, death from renal causes, and hospital admission for renal events. Complementing the results of randomized trials, these data suggest that SGLT2 inhibitors may actually lower the risk of serious renal events in routine clinical practice. The study added to the knowledge about SGLT2 inhibitors and renal outcomes by using nationwide registers from three countries, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, to include a large number of patients seen in routine clinical practice. Importantly, of the patients included in the study, 81% and 97% had no diagnosis of cardiovascular disease and chronic kidney disease, respectively. Although the absolute risk reduction associated with these inhibitors was larger in patients with cardiovascular disease or chronic kidney disease, the protective association of SGLT2 inhibitors was observed in patients without such history. Now, the findings from this observational study complement the data from clinical trials, as well as previous observational study of cardiovascular outcomes, and it actually provides further support for the use of these inhibitors across a broad range of patients with type 2 diabetes with various levels of renal function. Now, they've been suggested to protect the kidney through several mechanisms, including favorable effects on renal hemodynamics and reduction of tissue inflammation and fibrosis. So I think um, with these uh, studies coming out, it's definitely something to look into because a lot of times as pharmacists, we're looking at uh, renal function on these particular ones, especially as it's eliminated via the kidneys. Um, So I think it's one of those ones where we just stay um, posted on this one. 
The next one is about um, uh, a research that suggests that taking apixaban for non-valvular AF may be more effective and safer than taking rivaroxaban. Now, adults with non-valvular AF prescribed apixaban seem to have a lower rate of ischemic stroke and systemic blood clots compared with those prescribed rivaroxaban, and that's according to a retrospective cohort study in the Annals of Internal Medicine, which was done back in early March. Now, people taking apixaban were also less likely to experience gastrointestinal bleeding or bleeding in the brain. Now, researchers studied a U.S. insurance claims database to compare the safety and effectiveness of apixaban versus rivaroxaban for more than 78,000 patients with non-valvular AF. And after 290 days of follow-up, the rate of ischemic stroke or systemic embolism was 6.6 per thousand person years for adults prescribed apixaban compared with 8 per thousand person years for those prescribed rivaroxaban. The apixaban group also had a lower rate of gastrointestinal bleeding or intracranial hemorrhage compared with those with pre, uh, prescribed rivaroxaban, and that was actually a big difference at 12.9 versus 21.9 per thousand person years. Now, in another study of more than 90,000 patients with AF in the United States, um, apixaban was associated with a lower rate of stroke or systemic embolism, as well as bleeding compared with rivaroxaban. Now, the results are concordant with those of the first indirect comparison among randomized controlled trials that suggest apixaban was safer than rivaroxaban and with those of subsequent network meta-analysis. Now, of the 21 available network meta-analysis, 16 found a lower rate of major bleeding with apixaban compared with rivaroxaban. And the relative reduction in the bleeding rate was about 30%. Now, they both act through direct, selective, and reversible inhibition of free and clot-bound factor 10A, the anti-factor 10A levels may be used to estimate the plasma concentration of rivaroxaban or apixaban, with higher levels indicating higher drug concentrations. And a randomized study of uh, healthy participants found that apixaban taken at 5 milligrams twice a day, compared with rivaroxaban at 20 milligrams once a day, was associated with more consistent and stable anti-factor 10A activity, that is higher trough anti-factor 10A activity and lower peak anti-factor 10A activity. Now, the lower peak anti-factor 10A levels in patients receiving apixaban might account for the lower rates of major bleeding, whereas the higher trough levels may explain the lower rates of stroke and systemic embolism. Now, these proposed mechanisms are supported further by a recent study of patients with non-valvular AF that showed lower peak prothrombin time, which is the measure associated with anticoagulant activity, and they use that um, uh, checking um, your warfarin levels as well uh, to determine your INR. And uh, it's also uh, showed a higher trough prothrombin time with apixaban compared with rivaroxaban. Now, apixaban may be safer and more effective than rivaroxaban for treating non-valvular AF. Now, until head-to-head -head clinical trials are available, um, the results in this study included a large sample of patients um, provides an update on the evidence in support of apixaban um, being used to treat non-valvular AF over rivaroxaban. Now, coming back to a story I did four weeks ago regarding the severity of COVID in people taking an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, a new study has actually looked at how this works with influenza. Now, it all started because some researchers have hypothesized that drugs that interfere with the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, including ACE inhibitors and ARBs, may increase susceptibility to coronaviruses. Now, the hypothesis is based on the observation that coronaviruses engage the ACE2 receptor for cell entry, and that altered expression of ACE2 is influenced by the use of ACE inhibitors and ARBs, 
and an action that's been shown in animal models. Now, influenza A, which is your H7N9, H1N1, and H5N1, has been shown to use the ACE2 receptor to mediate lung damage, similar to that seen in severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS. Understanding the shared mechanism between SARS and influenza may help to address the question as to how ACE inhibitors and ARBs may modulate the manifestations of certain viral respiratory infections. Um, but this study, they looked at, um, they used the linked electronic healthcare records of around 5.6 million people in the UK to investigate the incidence of influenza amongst adults um, who had received a prescription for an ACE inhibitor uh, from 1998 through to 2016. And the same methods were used to assess the association between uh, ARBs and the incidence of influenza. Now, they identified just over 700,000 people who had received a prescription for an ACE inhibitor and 230,000 who had received a prescription for an ARB. And a total of 4.7 million people in the database had not received a prescription for an ACE inhibitor, an ARB, or a direct renin inhibitor. Now, analysis were adjusted for age at baseline, sex, smoking history, presence of obesity, influenza vaccination, the presence of 12 coexisting conditions, which I won't go through, um, but that, you know, obviously with uh, mostly heart related and also the time period of the influenza outbreak, obviously um, winter over summer. Now, during a median 8.7 years follow-up, people who had received a prescription for an ACE inhibitor had actually a lower risk of influenza than those who had not. So without reading the results out based on how much exposure to the drug they had, the curve was actually very linear based on the exposure. However, it was still a long, long way below the line for non-ACE inhibitor exposed patients. Now, the analysis compared the incidence of influenza and the use of ARBs also showed the results were very much the same. So uh, the use of ACE inhibitors and ARBs was actually associated with either no effect on the incidence of influenza or a lower incidence, depending on the duration of use. And these associations regarding observed susceptibility to influenza may reflect mechanisms that are shared with coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2. For all you pharmacists that are wanting to uh, brush up on your clinical knowledge, the American Society of Health Systems Pharmacies are offering one of their courses at no cost to all pharmacists worldwide. Now, the course is called Critical Care Pharmacy Review Course, and it's the Practical Exam and Core Therapeutic Modules Package. Now, the ASHP are allowing people to sign up for free until the 31st of May, and you have access to the modules until 31st of August. Now, I've signed up, and for the clinical update, it is certainly worth a look for no cost. Now, the modules include com complex cases on acute coronary syndrome, uh, pneumonia, sepsis, acute renal failure, just to name a few, as well as a range of topics in numerous categories such as pulmonary disorders, toxicology, infectious diseases, and acid-based complications. That's really detailed, and it's aimed at providing pharmacists a strong base of understanding critical cases, but it's also a great refresher to everyone that may be feeling a bit rusty on their clinical knowledge. Now, there's no commitment, and as I said, it's free access until the end of August. The website is www.ashp.org and search in the store for the course Critical Care Pharmacy Review Course. It will say it's a cost of about $600, but if you click through, it will go to checkout as no charge. If anyone wants to do this and have problems signing up, let me know and I can try and help you out. Another freebie is the therapeutic guidelines. Now, the TGs are a not-for-profit organization that 
exists to support the work of healthcare practitioners and the income they receive directly and solely from subscribers allows them to publish um, independent healthcare advice on their website. However, at the time of COVID-19, they want to make sure everyone who needs it can access ETG Complete. So complimentary access is now available for those who don't have a current subscription and includes use of ETG Complete Online and the ETG Complete app for all Apple and Android devices. Um, The subscription will be available until the 31st of July 2020, um, but note that the complimentary access does not extend to the download of ETG onto the computer. Now, if you've never had an account with them, you simply register using the button at the bottom. They need you to sign up to site terms and conditions, even for free access, but you won't be asked to supply a credit card or other payment information as part of the registration process. But if you have had a previous, if you have previously had an account with them, um, but your subscription has lapsed, you don't need to register again. Your account has been reactivated automatically. Uh, you simply log in with your previous username and password, and if you don't remember it, you can just reset it in the login page. Now, finally, I just wanted to touch on MetaAdvisor signups. We might have all heard this week that the first eScript um, via a token was dispensed in Victoria. Um, and this should be exciting times, but it's also a warning to start retaining patients as best we can. Now, at the moment at Tugra, we have used the flu vaccines to drive this sign-up process, and it's really having an amazing effects. So I'm just going to run down what we did. So firstly, at the point of dispensing the flu vaccines in Minfos, we asked the patient for their details, including Medicare and phone number, as it won't work without both. Uh, Secondly, we explained to them that they may receive a text message offering to sign up to our app, and we explained the benefits of the app, not just for script management, but also for health information, catalogs, click and collect, etc. But we explained they can choose to ignore the message if they please. Now, thirdly, when the pharmacist is done with the vaccination, we go through the paperwork on MedAdvisor and state that they may receive a text message offering to sign up to this app. Um, And this is actually where we drive it by having the pharmacist explain to them the benefits of the app, but also that it will retain a record of the vaccination that they just had. So some people can, uh, some people ask if they can ignore the message, which is, I I usually state it's fine. Um, But most people will actually ask further questions and we can often explain how it works, uh, the benefits of script management. Um, I also explain that changes coming in Australia with e-scripts and having an app like this already will make it, make the transition easier for them if they choose to use e-scripts. So we have had a fairly high success rate with the app signups using this technique. And if you're having trouble with sign-up numbers, um, have a go and see how it works for you. All right, guys, um, that's it for this fortnight. So I hope everyone um, enjoyed that. And if anyone has anything they want to ask, um, feel free to drop me a line and um, I'll see you guys next time.